Fab, thank you. So, as Craig said, we are starting our new service, looking at seven helpful, healthy habits um, over these next seven weeks. Now, you may have already twigged seven helpful habits is indeed... We're looking at the opposites of what we know as the seven deadly sins. Now, I became a Christian a little while ago. And when Dave said, we're going to do this topic and it's, you know, seven helpful habits. We're going to look at it in contrast to the seven deadly sins. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know all about that, actually. But I don't know where they are in the Bible. Where are seven? Oh, no, they're not in the Bible. Oh, I didn't miss a huge chunk of the Bible in the last 20 years. Thank goodness for that. These are things, yes, they are in the Bible, obviously. We're not just doing a series on something that's entirely not in the Bible. But these, you're not going to find this list in the Bible. This is a list that has emerged from the early church, from the church fathers, from monks in the desert. It's a brilliant story. If you're into church history, go and look at how a load of monks went into the desert to be kind of holy and... Um, you know, live in a holy thing and discovered the seven deadly sins. I found this just very funny. They had an issue with women and bishops. It all gets very complicated. Um, But anyway, I'm not going there. But they come out of the early church fathers. And, you know, it's a really helpful thing to look at. But if we, as we go through them, you may start to think, these aren't, you know, where is murder? It's not there. I'll just give you that hint now. It's not there. But even today, you may start to question, you know, why is Claire so concerned about her feelings for David Tennant? And why is she so concerned about the fact that she ate an entire box of Maltesers last night? Sorry, teachers, that that was supposed to get to. We didn't get it, and I ate it. Um, And why is she not talking about genocide happening in Sudan at the moment? Because do you know what? My feelings for David Tennant feel fairly inconsequential in when you come to looking at some of these big things that are happening in the world. But do you know what? These seven things that we're going to look at, these seven helpful habits, are going to help us to not go down paths that do lead us to some very, very dark places. Now, also this morning, some of you know my background is in theatre, and I think playwrights often reflect on the world in a fascinating way. So we are also going to have a little whistle-stop of uh, sort of 17th and 19th century playwrights. Uh, so we're going to start with Anton Chekhov, fascinating playwright, and Anton Chekhov says this, a person will only become better when you make him see what he is like. That's one of the things that we're going to do this summer. My only caveat that I'd put on Anton Chekhov is there is it's not actually my job to make you see what you're like. What we're going to do this summer is we're going to ask God to reveal to us some of the things that are inside us, and we're going to ask God to give us and show us habits that can help us to change. What we're not going to do this summer is come up with seven ways to condemn ourselves even more. And if you do find yourself doing that, come and find someone because that really isn't what we want to do. What we do want to do is give you seven ways to equip yourself to grow in faith. So, Dave said to me, I'm wondering, 
declare who I might give the subject of lust to. And I was like, me, I'll take lust. Um, It's a subject actually I'm really interested in. We are going to look at how the helpful habit of love contrasts with lust. Now, it is incredible. If you start thinking about lust and start, you know, okay, don't Google lust. But if you start kind of thinking, you see it everywhere. TV programs uh, encouraging us how we can invite another person into our marital bed. A whole TV program dedicated to that pops up in my adverts. A mass of adverts for OnlyFans telling me how I can use my own sexuality to safely make money online by creating content to satisfy other people. This is all ads that have been sent to me in the last couple of weeks. It's really, really easy nowadays to see lust, not only in our culture, but celebrated, championed. Empower yourself, women, by taking your sexuality online. And do you know what? At first glance, actually, it's kind of easy to go, yeah, all right, that that makes sense. I'm safe. I'm in my house. Nobody can get to me. I can make some money. It's me taking control of my own sexuality. I get it. I get the appeal. Actually, it makes sense to a degree. But actually, the more you research, the more you look you begin to see how dangerous these paths can be. How damaging to yourself and to the people who you're selling yourself to can become. Shakespeare is a bit of a... I'm a bit of a fan of Shakespeare. Um, Oh, there we go. There's the Chekhov quote. Uh, Shakespeare. Love Shakespeare. Very underrated playwright, I think. Anyway... Sonnet 129, the expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action and till action lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallow bait. On purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having the quest to have extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe. Before a joy proposed, behind a dream, all this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. You know, Shakespeare is more critical of lust than Paul, actually, in the Bible. Shakespeare's quite brutal about lust. Enjoyed no sooner but despised straight. I think that sums up those feelings that probably all of us know to a degree. Maybe it's about porn, lust. Maybe it's about the box of Maltesers that I ate. I loved eating them, but I tell you what, afterwards, it was really not a lot of fun. But this is what lust does to us. So, 
What do I mean by lust? What I don't mean is sexual desire. And I think in the church particularly, we have to be really, really careful uh, around this. Sexual desire is a God-given gift. Sexual desire is in the Bible. Song of Songs is one of the most sensual, erotic books you can ever read. You know, we can't kind of close our mind and say, actually, God doesn't really do the whole sex thing. No, 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 no. Read Song of Songs and discover God really does. God gets this and he doesn't want us to hide from it. But do you know what? Over the years, I'm not sort of blaming our church particularly for this. I don't think we do this so much. But the church in history has turned sexual desire into a sin. There's a whole load of church history where women weren't allowed to, were only allowed to preach when they were nuns. Because as soon as they engaged in any kind of sexual desire, they became sinful and dirty and obviously couldn't speak from the front. Church has a bit of a bad history when it comes to sex. But I want to say right from the start, we need to reclaim that as something given by God. But we need to recognize its power and we need to ask for God's wisdom as we experience it. So where does the contrast come? Lust puts our needs and our desires above everything else and In the process, it damages us and it damages other people. Love opens us up to healing, to healthy relationships. It helps us to look beyond ourselves and it it helps us to look beyond our own wants and desires and needs. Lust is love distorted. Lust is love distorted. Lust has its beginnings in God-given love, in sexual desire, but it has become twisted into a choice to not put someone else first, but to take, uh, to damage for our own gain without the thought of anyone else. One of the biggest problems with lust is that it starts off as a joke. I made a joke. We had dinner with Matt and Maddie the other day, and Abby Douglas and I were leaving their house, and we were talking about theatre, and we were talking about a play that's going to be happening in London with... uh, The um, hot priest himself, Andrew Scott, Uh, if anyone has watched those TV programs, Andrew Scott, an amazing, amazing actor. And I made some flippant comment about Andrew Scott and I'm just, you know, I'm not sure, is he worth paying £100 for a ticket? And Abby joked back and, you know, this whole, he did a TV programme, he was known as the hot priest, he's an attractive man, let's not hide from that. It went, we went there. Very easily. I'm sure lots of you maybe have made a joke about the attractiveness of somebody. And you know what? There's no harm in finding someone attractive. That's okay. I'm married to Matt. It's obvious I find him attractive. I find other men attractive. Shock horror. Is this, but do you know what I mean? Is it has that reaction? Is that okay to say? 
There will be people here who find are in married relationships and you find somebody else attractive. That's kind of normal. But we've got to be careful. Because that's a feeling that we have. What do I do with that? I make a flippant joke with Abby about it. Let's be honest, it probably doesn't go any further than that. But when he becomes my wallpaper on my phone, or the screensaver, sometimes, you know, maybe it gets a little bit more concerning. And we kind of laugh and joke about it. But actually, it's quite easy to... I have friends who have that. It's not like it's not known. It's really quite common. It's very normal. Because a story, you know, about having a joke with Abby as I'm leaving a house, it's not that far to masturbation. It's not that far to porn. And if there's any seeds of dissatisfaction in my marriage, then it's easy to go looking somewhere else to satisfy And as soon as I've walked down the masturbation road, well, then an affair isn't actually all that far away. It's it's not that difficult a, a line to cross. Maybe, you know, I've made a joke of it. You think, well, that's a little bit extreme, Claire. That's never going to happen to me. And I pray it won't. And actually, for most of us, it It might well not. And, you know, uh, science says, I've read a few articles on this, actually, as you get older, it's incredible how much easier it is to not go down that road. Age has a massive, um, you know, it just chills our libido out a little bit. Actually, when we're younger, our libido is more. It is greater. So we have to be a little bit more aware of it. But that doesn't mean to say that we're not at risk at all. Things spiral quickly. Let's just keep it in our heads. Now, so what does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 13 Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It protects, trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Keep that in your head. 2 Samuel 11. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. The most famous story of lust in the Bible But what I want to do is work through 1 Corinthians 13 and just see if we can find any glimmers of that in that story. Love is patient. Patient. David was stood on a roof. I want that. Go and get it. It didn't take long. No, there was no patience. Love is kind. Rape is not kind. Love does not envy. 
I want another man's wife. No, there's definitely some envy. Love's not boastful or proud. This is a man using his power to take what he wants. No, there was definitely boastfulness and pride. Love does not dishonor others. David dishonors Bathsheba. She dishonors her husband and, she, and, he, and he dishonors himself. Love is not self-seeking. Rape is self-seeking. There's no doubt about that. When we read on in the story, we discover Bathsheba's pregnant and what follows is a web of anger and deception. You know, we can look at that story, but at the moment, I have two friends who are right now dealing with situations with their young people. These are under 16-year-olds who are being hurt by a combination of power and lust. It's a dangerous combination. But it doesn't start looking like that. It starts as a joke. It starts as a release of sexual tension. You'll hear that. You'll hear psychologists talk about how actually um, to masturbate is a release of sexual tension and it is to be encouraged. That's, that's not an uncommon thing to, you'll hear somebody say in a, in a therapy session. The problem with that is once we start down that road, masturbation becomes a norm. It becomes accepted. It becomes something that we think about more and more and more. You'll all kind of know it with all sorts of parts of your life. If you start doing something and enjoying it and thinking about it, you move on and you'll do it again and you'll do it again and you'll do it again and it becomes a normal part of our life. That one-off satisfaction becomes a regular need. And that's the thing we're going to discover in this season, that the seven deadly sins generally start as uh, gifts from God, normal stuff that becomes distorted and corrupted. They teach us to treat people like they're things. We treat people like something we buy off Amazon. It's that easy now. We don't question the damage that it's doing. So, what can we do? How can we love well? How can we make sure our love is safe from the distortion of lust? Well, the first thing we've got to do is take it seriously. Because I think I can say confidently that every single person will experience lust in their life. We can't kind of pretend that that's not who we are. We will experience it at some point. So, what do we do? I love that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, and I suspect most of you might even know, you might not know it word for word, but you'll know lots of it off by heart. I challenge you to maybe even learn it off by heart, word for word, but if not, just pick out the key messages from it and test your relationships. Are my relationships patient, kind, not self-seeking? 
I would also challenge you to do that with your online relationships. Because as the world becomes more and more online, and I actually don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not anti-online friendships, online communication, chat rooms, all of those things, I think have a real place in society. But it is so much easier to turn an online person into a thing than it is to turn a person here into a thing. Because you don't see them, you don't touch them, you don't hear them breathe. You're not there with them. We've got to be careful that we don't turn those people into a thing. So that's my first thing we can do. We can take 1 Corinthians 13 and test our friendships against it. The second thing that we can do is get out. Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde is a man who does... um, know about lust, let's be very honest. But Oscar Wilde says this, if your sins find you out, why worry? It's when they find you in that the trouble begins. He's a wise man. Lust is generally not a problem when you're out because you're surrounded by people. There's accountability, there's friendships. Lust is a problem when we're in, when we're at home. So go out. If you realize that you're spiraling down a rabbit warren that you don't want to go down, it's okay to go out. Go for a walk. Go and see someone. It's one of those things that feels a bit obvious, but actually, do you know what? It's a really simple thing to do. The final thing that we need to do is talk. Helen and I, Matt and I had our 15th wedding anniversary. We were going for a romantic weekend without the children recently. Helen and I had a conversation that Sunday at church about sex. It was an off-the-cuff conversation about the pressure of a romantic weekend and making it the best thing. We're without our children and, oh my goodness, we've got to do this. It's so easy to feel that pressure. Having a conversation with Helen about that just made me chill out. I had a conversation about sex and it was normal. It was okay. Is there somebody in your life, if you are in a married relationship, is there someone in your life that you can be open with and talk about it? I'm not suggesting we should be discussing sex lives with everybody. But I am suggesting that it is important to have people that we're safe to do that with. The highs and the lows. If we're single, actually, the one thing I'm going to say is if, as a church, one of the things we do badly, I think, is become a safe place for single people to talk about sexual desire and relationships and how that works I can't speak on that because it's not my position but I do and I do kind of almost want to repent I guess as a church and say I'm sorry where we don't do that very well and please talk to us about how we can do that better I didn't feel that I was qualified really to talk about that at this point but I do think it's something we ought to be talking about in a more open way We need to talk to people. But as a church, we need to do this. This is uh, from a guy called William Williamson in a book called Sinning Like a Christian. And I think we need to do this. It's a really good book. I recommend it. Um, As a church, I think this is what we need to do. The way is to try to understand and relate to that person as he or she is as someone caught in a web of self-destructive, hurtful sin, and yet, in the cross of Jesus, loved in their sin. 
They are saved as they are, not as we would like them to be. To be there with them, to listen to them, to show care and concern for them as they are, is the necessary prelude to true transformation. As a church, can we commit to doing that? If somebody comes to us because they trust us and we're a safe place and says, I'm really struggling with porn. I'm thinking of having an affair. Can we be a church that doesn't judge? Can we be a church who says, Jesus loves you right now as you are. And can we walk a journey with them into change? Because church, that's what we're called to be. A people who don't judge. And so I'm going to finish by praying for us. And I'm going to encourage you, if you're in a place where lust is, is a problem in your life, find a safe person to talk to. Be that your home group leader, a trusted friend. And if you think, I just don't know who that is, email me or Dave. We are really happy to find someone for you to talk to, to work through that journey with you. And if somebody shares with you, think about how you respond. So Heavenly Father, help us to celebrate the good things about sex. Help us to remember that that is a gift from you. Lord, help us as a church to talk about these things in a better way. Help us as a church and as home groups and as friends to be open, to be honest, and to be loving. Help us to recognize boundaries that we may need to put into our lives. Give us confidence and courage to do that. And Father, Lord, I repent and, and give space for others to repent of ways where we treat people as things, as objects. Father, help us to love better. Amen.